Hello and welcome. My name is Chris. I'm Creston. And I'm still Chris, and this is the Rubber Duck Dev Show. Tonight, we're going to be talking about object-oriented programming versus functional programming, and I am going to get the functional programming for dummies course from Creston. So, uh, I know nothing about functional programming other than it starts with an F. Um, I'm an OO guy, so uh, teach me, sensei. Oh, gosh. No pressure. So I'm going to first start this off talking about this because like I do a lot of Ruby programming and there's this concept of service objects. And I had read a number of posts because this is kind of how we thought about doing the show. I had read a number of posts talking about service objects and how bad they are and they are an anti-pattern uh, because basically OO is supposed to be, you know, contain data as well as methods and just having a class that all it does is methods is a little bit of an anti-pattern because particularly they name things like so-and-so processor or so-and-so worker or something like that. Whereas an object-oriented programming, you generally call something by an object. So it's, you know, an email or it's a, you know, some something, some object and you attach methods to it. So I think I think I'm sharing my screen now. Do you need to flip the okay. So like this is a post he talks about enough with serb service objects already. And this is related to Ruby. And you can tell that um, and basically they've taken a segment of code, just um, processing code, and put it into a service object that's called IPN processor. And basically, when you call it, you have to do IPM processor new and then process the IPM. So it's a lot of redundancy and confusing using some of these service objects. So that's the first hint that maybe something's a bit fishy about it. Mm -hmm. So I have used this pattern in different places. And I actually like the cleanliness of just having, now I shouldn't say just classes, but certain objects or certain just a collection of methods now what he ultimately did is refactored and placed this into um, a module and then placed essentially a uh, self method here so he can just call the percolator process ipn so it's a much cleaner way to to call it but at the end of the day he still just has a method in here um, that is not essentially as part of a class. Hmm. So he calls it a public module that, that level method. Now, why this kind of led down the functional programming route is because functional programming is essentially all about functions. And you don't store data in classes in functional programming. Now, if you're interested in a little bit more of the topic about this, they talk about service objects and talking about it being an anti-pattern in this um, as well. And essentially, they created a uh, user media rater. So when it, one of these uh, posts said, anytime you have something ending in er, it may be a sign you're trying to use a service object, and maybe you don't want to do that. Mm. But uh, going back to object-oriented versus functional programming, they are not actually dedicated to specific languages, but they're more um, paradigms as uh, you know, Bob Martin of the Clean Coder has commented on here. And you can see this post was from 2012. And he kind of mentioned three paradigms and the three are listed here, uh, functional programming, object-oriented programming, and structured programming. And if you, find, if you look at this, the oldest one is functional programming uh, from Lisp. Look, so, if you make me learn COBOL again, I'm I quit. <laughs> yeah, or Fortran. We could do Fortran. Oh. <laughs> so now to so basically, it's not dedicated to languages. Like JavaScript can be written, can be written, can be written <laughs> in a functional style, or it can be written in an object-oriented style. I believe. Um, 
Same thing with uh, Python. You could write it in a functional style or in an object-oriented style. So, but people who have used Ruby, they would say that's definitely more in the object-oriented camp. And I'm going to bring up Elixir since that is a the purest functional programming language I have experience with is more of a pure functional programming. So I'm going to do some compare and contrast between them and you can uh, interrupt me as I'm doing this. So the functional programming camp is kind of anti-service object. Well, no, I mean, it's, it's more like the service object because it is, they're just pure functions. Oh, so the way that, that people have been writing service objects, they say, is just an incorrect, an incorrect way of writing service objects. Right. Calling it a, I think it, it, people have different terminology, but calling it a class even in and of itself and all you have are methods in it is a bit confusing because again, you're calling it, um, you know, it would be better to do it this way. Um, some people have called them classes and called them process classes. Basically all they have is um, modules within it. But I think the service object thing is basically it does one thing. So you have a bunch of small files that have one method in them. Um, mm -hmm. And I really am bringing this up because people are saying this is an anti-pattern and I'm like, but I love this. I love having something that just has methods in it. I mean, but that's for a very small minority of the methods in my application. The vast majority are classes that of course have data and methods associated with them. Right. So they're not opposed to service objects as a concept. They're just opposed to how people are writing them. Right. And I think if you call it a serv service object is a little bit of a loaded term, but I've heard the terminology in terms of calling in process objects or something like that. I don't know. Okay. Or module level methods is another way, like they're demonstrating here. Gotcha. <clears throat> anyway, so, so jumping into this. So again, I'm going to talk about Elixir, and basically it's a functional programming language that's defined by Jose or Jose Valin. He used to be one of the Ruby developers, and he jumped over to starting writing Elixir, and it is a compiled language, so it's not interpreted like Ruby, and it runs on the Erlang virtual machine. So much like there's a Java virtual machine, well, in Erlang, there's an Erlang virtual machine. And this is what I kind of call it. It's the offspring of Erlang and Ruby, has a lot of the power of Erlang with a syntax and tooling similar to Ruby. So in Erlang, if you he haven't heard of it, it's developed by, in 1986 by uh, Ericsson, usually used in telecommunications. So it has a lot of tooling for creating scalable, distributed, high available systems. Uh, and it, it's essentially a functional language with immutable data. And it runs again on the virtual machine. Now, going back to this, I mentioned this before, but object-oriented programming generally stores both methods and functions, uh, excuse me, functions and data or state that is mutable in objects. Functional programming only uses pure functions that are grouped into modules. So there's no concept of a class in functional programming. And the state is generally not stored, or what's more appropriately termed, I think, is that there are um, no a constraint. I think the term that I've seen used by Bob Martin and others is it constrains assignment. And you'll see that a little bit. It, what it does, it doesn't call assignment, it calls pattern matching. So in terms of just using pure functions, basically you just have an input that goes into a function then gets passed to another function and then leads to new data coming out. And there's a comment by Dave Thomas that says functional programming is all about data transformation. So basically you just have pure functions that take data in and spit data out. And there's just a pipeline of functions that bring data where it needs to go. Um, so a little bit about storing state here, which is of course what object-oriented programming does, which mm -hmm. functional programming tries to, um, well, of course it stores some state, but it tries to avoid 
doing that with permanence. Like there's this no concept of global variables really. Um, so some of the disadvantages of storing state is concurrency. So whenever something is having, you have a shared objects, accessing that is gonna be difficult in terms of concurrency. So imagine yep. you have 32 cores and you wanna change the state of an object to different values at the same time, you run into problems. So that's why you have locking and mutexes and all that. Kind right, of stuff. yeah, oh gosh, on, on desktop programming and .NET, Trying to keep threading straight is a nightmare sometimes. So, right. uh, so, and which is what this specifically speaks to is same objects trying to get hold of, or multiple threads trying to get hold of the same object, and then last guy wins, but you don't know which is the last guy at any given point. Yeah. So, functional programming, functional programming language avoid avoid this issue. Uh, a little bit of comment about imperative versus declarative. Like uh, Ruby, you generally specify exactly how your program carries out its work. You do a loop. You do um, set you know certain variables to these things. In Elixir, it's more like it's declarative. So you kind of explain what you want the end result to be, and it kind of does it a little bit more for you. It's not exactly that way, but it's not, I guess I would say, as explicit or as imperative as Ruby. So it's a little more black boxy than Ruby is. Uh, you could you could say that. But like in SQL, you don't run, you don't use a loop to bring back a set of records, for example. Right. So maybe you're, you you use more lap, excuse me, use more maps to mm -hmm. iterate over something. Mm -hmm. But. All right, so this, this was talking about assignment versus matching. So in Ruby, you assign values to variables, you know, x, x equals one. Well, in Elixir, you ask it to attempt to match the value of the right side of an expression to the left. So it's more like the concept of mathematics. So this is a, the Elixir website and it's talking about pattern matching. So it's perfectly legal to do something like this in Elixir where you have, I don't know if this is big enough. You can say x equals one. And basically it's saying, does, does this match? And it, it returns one, but you can also do one equals x. Does x match one? And it's perfectly okay. Um, but if you try to do that, again, when one is essentially, you've established that one is equal to x, it errors out when you try to do two. But if you try to do something like this in Ruby, you're going to get an error. Because again, kind of it, it, to my simplistic mind, it's still assignment, but really what it's doing is, is matching things. Mm. So the thing about it is, is that programming in this style, I have to I have to actually train my brain to think slightly differently when I'm programming in this than I would with Ruby. I think Ruby, it's much easier to jump in and interpret and just go and get coding. I actually have to change the way I think to a certain extent to program in this style. And it may be other people don't have to do that as much. So... So the equal sign is matching. It, it's it's more akin to Ruby's double equal. The logic logical equals are these the same thing than assignment? The single equals in Ruby. Yeah, but it's also if this hasn't been set yet, you're you're also stating. Um, it essentially has become a sign because look, if you do x equals one, it returns a one, which means that is now the value of x because you stated it as so. But I can only assign it once. Once I've assigned it, that's it. Right. Yeah. Well, that would. Well, that would but blow you, up my it brain. does. It does have a little bit again because of the immutability. Now you can do some reassignment, but it's definitely, at least that's what I recall. But it's definitely 
not encouraged or you're not supposed to do that. You have to jump through more hoops to do that. Yeah, I, I'm trying to remember. It's been an actual. It's been a while since I've actually gone in and done some elixir coding, um, but so. Oh, what's my spot? I'll just keep it right here. Okay, so loops versus recursion. So in Ruby, you frequently use loops. In Elixir, you 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 use recursion, so you don't have to mutate state. So I don't have an I counter or something. Exactly. So here, you have a variable with state that is mutable. And this is a C. This is a C language. So every time it goes through the iteration, it is actually changing this value, the I value. Mm -hmm. You can't do that, so you use recursion. And they've set this up here with two methods here. So it calls this value and then it calls itself. And then once the n reaches zero, this method is actually called as opposed to the top one and exits the recursive loop. Hmm. So basically recursion allows you not to mutate the state of the variable because what's being, it's essentially, this isn't a variable that's being, I mean, it's a value that's being passed through an input. So it's all about transformation inputs to outputs. Okay. And essentially you're doing that when you're doing something recursively. Right. Uh, so also in Ruby, you frequently use conditionals. So if else, et cetera, to branch your code. In Elixir, you can, there are, there are a number of conditionals, but you can, or I would say the best practice is to actually use, do what I say here, use multiple functions with different parameters defined. And that's an example of it right here. We didn't, well, it's difficult to do with recursion. You can't really do it that way, but generally what is encouraged is to use, this is called a guard, but you do things Can such you as zoom this. that a bit? Excuse me? Can you zoom that a zoom, bit? Sorry. So this is called a guard on when you're going to be executing a particular function. So basically you design, design multiple functions and then based upon the input variables, it does a match to see which function needs to be executed. So generally you follow this type of pattern as opposed to using um, if then else. Mm -hmm. But it does have it, so I've used it in my code, but generally in terms of functional programming, that's generally the path that you use. Mm -hmm. The other notable thing is uh, like in Ruby, do you know how you have, you frequently um, return from a function early? Right. And I've seen that frequently in Ruby programs, potentially you return, you know, five different times, you know, if right. return, if this code is this, return if this code is this. Well, you actually can't do that in Elixir because they want, um, I think the terminology is like a, a, a fixed control flow. Mm -hmm. So basically you have to go to the end of the if or to the end of the else, for example. Mm. Oh my goodness, this, this, my brain, I'm not sure if my brain could translate because I have spent so many years doing OO programming and having my brain trained that way that these, these other concepts are really a stretch for, they don't seem like that big a deal, but if I was going to sit down and program this stuff, it would really take some effort. That's what I was saying when I program in this, it's kind of like good and bad. Um, once you get it, it's great, but it's a, it is a bit of a struggle. I'm, I'm sure the more that you use it, it becomes more second nature. Sure. But I do have to think differently to get in the mindset of programming in this functional style. Mm -hmm. And like, this is what I was talking about pipelining again. It's all about um, trans transforming. Uh, 
So for example, in Ruby, you may say, all right, going to have a customer's variable and I'm going to find the customers. And then I'm going to set an orders variable. I'm going to get the orders for these customers and get the tax processing the sales tax for these orders for this given year. Now you can do this in more of a functional style. Again, trying not to create so many intermediate objects in Ruby by doing something like this. Mm -hmm. But in Elixir, it has this way to essentially pipeline the output to the first parameter of the next function. So for example, and you know, I probably shouldn't even be setting the tax variable here, <laughs> but it's basically you run this command and it passes the results to the first parameter of this command, which patch passes the results of this to the first parameter of this function. So you got and then it outputs the data. So you got like a chain of functions there that just but that that those functions don't call the other functions. They just pass a parameter basically down to the next line and the line calls the function with right, that parameter. Right. Yeah. And actually in um in uh, Phoenix, which is the Rails equivalent for Elixir, it has essentially a function pipeline. So a request comes in, some input comes in to the framework that runs a function that creates a connection object of all the different parameters. It could be headers, could be params being set in from the query string, uh, et cetera. That get pa gets passed to another function and then goes to controllers. And you know the whole process is just mutating the or I guess mutating is a bad word, but in terms of talking about functional programming, hmm. but it is definitely updating the data, changing the data, essentially mutating it through huh. until the response comes out. So again, the, the, the comment that is, it's all about transformation. So a given payload has come in and you're transforming it to what the response should be. At least that's the kind of thinking, uh, at least for Elixir. But you're not you're not actually changing things. You're not changing the things inside the black box. You're just taking the input into the black box, doing some stuff and giving transforming that input into something else. Right. So these again with functional programming, these are pure functions. So there's no like instance variables to speak of. It's just, they're pure functions, super simple to test, getting an input and spitting out an output. So these are more but like you, like a class level function or a, a module in .NET where it's, you don't instantiate this thing, you just call the functions that are in the module. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, there's no instantiation because yeah, there's no object essentially. Okay. which means you can't pass that object around with mutated data. So you can't store the data in the object. So exactly. And there again, that gives it essentially that's another indication of its immutability because you know, nothing changes within the function. Gotcha. What, what is mutating is the, the data object that's being passed through inputs and outputs until it eventually returns the data to the browser. Okay. Um, now I, I grabbed this, I, I don't, I need to find where the quote was, but in Ruby, you typically hear, you know, everything is an object. Mm -hmm. In in Erlang, you may hear everything is a process. So processes are kind of a whole nother level and it's actually how you can store a state that hangs around. It's not within the functions, but it's within these processes. Now, of course you can store state by saving something to the database, but I'll kind of explore what processes are. So in Elixir, a process is not an operating system process. So there's not a one-to-one -one comparison of an Elixir process to an operating system process. It's actually an Erlang process that's handling it. And it's not a thread, it's separate from the considerations of threads. So don't think of it as a thread. So 
it's exactly what it says here. It's a lightweight implementation using the actor model of concurrency. So what is that? So what's the actor model? So it's a system of independent processes or actors that can send and receive messages like an object in Ruby, but each has its own memory space. And each actor, so again, each Elixir process or Erlang process has its own address and a mailbox that seriously processes message, messages asynchronously. Now, I think you can use this actor model in other programming languages, um, yeah. but this is primarily what uh, Erlang and Elixir do for to handle to be able to handle their high concurrency. So it's basically you have just independent processes that have mailboxes in front of them, and you can send it a message, and eventually you're going to get a message back. So all right, so I'm and having... this is a continuously running process, so it can store stuff within that process. And what 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 I mean by store stuff is that it can store something in memory or keep something resident in that process, like a variable. So if you needed to instantiate something to remember something, you would do it as a process as opposed to, say, creating an object in Ruby with an instance variable or something like that. So I'm a little confused. I'm having a bit of a disconnect here with how this is different from an instantiated object like a, a, a Poro, um, just an instantiated Poro, but um, because, you know, if I instantiate something, I send information into it, it does some stuff, and then gives me information back. And it's that's essentially an actor model. So how is this different to that? I'll have to look up the actor model. I'm I can't recall exactly, but I know one thing that makes Elixir different is the concept of being asynchronous. Now, I'm sure you could, by default, Ruby with you set, creating an object, instantiating it, setting a value, asking for a value, that all happens synchronously. Well, per per worker, yes. But if I instantiate an object, that instance of that object has its own memory space, and I can instantiate a bunch of them. Right. Well, what I'm saying is that, but if something needs to get information from a specific object, it's that's a synchronous request to get that. Oh, true. Yes. So I'm saying what this has it has these processes have a mailbox in front of it. So basically any request comes in and it needs to wait and it seriously, sorry, serious, exactly. It <laughs> serially processes the messages asynchronously. So this gives you higher concurrency without having to worry about threading or having to worry about multiple processes accessing the same object concurrently. Okay. All right. I think I I'm mean it's it. it's 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 similar, you know, but it's similar but different, you know, clear as mud. <laughs> right. Well, and I think I mean if we're just talking about the actor model in general that the, the because you can do that in object-oriented programming, too. I mean, the actor model exists there, so it's the same concept, I think. Just the implementations internally would be different here. But Yeah, but I'm just saying this is how one would store state. Right. You know, you use modules that just have pure functions. So... You, you don't instantiate any kind of an object, but you may fire up a process that retains certain values for you that you can query on and ask that to be changed. So you don't change anything directly. You kind of request of that process, hey, update your value. And it'll, and it'll, I think usually the implementations, you do an immediate return and then at some point it will get around to doing it. Although I think you can't, no, you can do asynchronous call as well, but then you're hindering your concurrency if you do that. 
might as well be doing a O at that point. <laughs> All right, so I actually tried migrating a Ruby project to an Elixir project, and these are kind of my personal opinions on it when I did that migration. It was a couple of years ago. But um, I talked, this is basically my rating of kind of what was good and what was bad. Um, so the immutability, I actually really liked it because I felt it kept me safer because being able to mutate state in certain cases can get you into trouble. So oh, yes. this is one aspect of it I really liked. Um, Elixir, this is more Elixir Phoenix, probably not in Phoenix being the web framework uh, complement for Elixir. They're more explicit, whereas with Ruby and Rails, there's kind of more magic behind the scenes that it just does stuff for you. Um, I actually liked that Elixir was more explicit with what I had to do. I understood more of the guts of how things were working compared to me trying to read some Ruby code. Um, the pipeline operator, that's great. I like being able to just, that concept of taking inputs and putting it through a pipeline, I love that. Um, uh, processing for jobs, I like this too. Basically, with a lot of big Rails apps, you have Redis and you have a bunch of workers that are running, um, like using Sidekick and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, <clears throat> Elixir has its own methods for dealing this where you can spawn processes easily and do things asynchronously. So this was super easy to set up without having to bring in something like a sidekick without having to have Redis as a dependency and stuff. So that, that was really cool. Um, using recursion instead of loops, it definitely requires thinking differently. So that you know, I called that, it, it, it was interesting, but it's definitely challenging. The pattern matching concept too is pretty much a challenge compared to assignment. Uh, the things I kind of liked less was having to compile things because, you know, wait around more. Yeah. And I ran into some issues when you update a file or you copy file and you forget to change something and then you have to recompile. It, it was a little bit more difficult. Mm-hmm. This is something interesting. When you actually look at it, the code readability and appearance, I think it's not as easy on the eyes and easy to just jump in and understand compared to Ruby. That was at one least, of my favorite things about Ruby. That that specifically was the readability yeah. and the way it looked. I mean, if you blur test a Ruby screen, it just looks nicer than most other languages. Yeah, and Elixir is pretty good compared to other functional programming languages I've yeah. seen. Because <laughs> some of those can become super terse. Um, but Elixir is pretty good. Um, but I will say this, even, even with this, sometimes I've looked at trying to understand what a Ruby gem, gem is and a really hard time kind of understanding what a Ruby gem was doing. Sometimes that was written by someone else. I've had challenges comprehending it. And it was much easier when I actually, the um, Elixir equivalent is a mix package. So it's a con contained library. Mm -hmm. And I was actually able to read other people's code better with Elixir, I felt. Hmm. That's interesting. I mean, I will say I have seen a lot of terribly written Ruby code. Um, so, yeah. you know, if you, it doesn't matter how nice the language is, if you write garbage code, it's just not going to be very readable, but, and you can make Ruby look like garbage if you want to, but by and large that had, that was one of the things that really attracted me to Ruby in the first place was the readability and the, the intuitive nature of, I don't know what this method is called on this object, but I can take a guess because this is what I wanted to do. And usually I'm right, you know? Yep. And uh, deployment, this was a challenge, I think, early on. I think they've done a lot for it as well. And this is mostly from the web framework perspective. And then they had a lot of frequent framework changes because it was definitely newer a few years ago. So 
that's that's calmed down. So I wouldn't necessarily class these classify these bottom two as still issues. I can't I can't think though of a a language or a framework that I've used where I would give deployment anything better than a C. I, deployment just seems to be a real pain in the butt, no matter what language you're using. So I don't know that I'd hold that against Elixir or, or functional programming. Yeah. Yeah. So. And again, I'm kind of conflating, you know, talking about Elixir and a lot of this, but it is, I'm again, I'm using an example of the purest functional programming language I've used. Mm -hmm. to try and give some comparisons. Um, and this is kind of my thoughts on it, is that you know getting started with Elixir Functional Programming Language the right way requires changing how you think and, co think and code when compared to Ruby. And you have to think more of a, on a functional basis, declarative basis, and stateless basis. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of the stuff will give you that concurrency. Right. And, and I think that would be, I mean, that there would be a significant learning curve to for me to start programming in Elixir. I don't think it'd be any worse than switching from like the desktop programming paradigm to the web programming paradigm, because then, you know, you've got stateful and stateless and all kinds of different things you have to think about and different ways of thinking. But this, you know, the stuff that I'm because I'm thinking through this stuff you're talking about, these differences. And I'm like, man, if you took away looping structures from me, <laughs> my my brain would melt. And and uh, a lot of conditionals. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I understand what recursive is, but using that instead of a loop, I'm not sure I could... I'm not sure I could wrap my head around that. But I'm kind of an idiot, so maybe it's just me. Yeah, I mean, I think... Again, I've seen references that it's a more mathematically consistent language. Mm -hmm. So maybe if you are strong in, and not saying you're weak in mathematics or whatever, but I think if you think a certain way, you can, because you can adapt to it easier or may like it better. Because kind of that's my, again, from what I'm saying, I had to change the way I thought in order to program Elixir correctly. Right. And, but like you, it's kind of like in Ruby, hey, I want a loop, da -da 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 -da, you know, just type it out here. Whereas this, okay, I got to do a recursive program. <laughs> All right, everybody, hold, hold on, hold the phone. I got to think how to do, you know. Right. Now, again, with more experience, maybe that will happen faster. Like if I was programming Elixir or functional programming language all the time, that may become more easy. Yeah. Well, and I think too, like the probably the closer you are to the beginning of your career, the easier this is to pick up. Just like kids have an easier time picking up spoken languages, other spoken languages than adults. Because, you know, after 25 years of doing this OO programming, my brain just automatically thinks in a certain way. And so I have to, if I want it to do something else, like thinking about recursion instead of loops, I have to put the brakes on because I'm automatically just writing loops because I just know that, hey, if I'm trying to do this thing, it's a loop, you know? And so undoing 25 years of, of training, brain training is a little more difficult than picking it up in, you know, year two or three, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of stuff I like about it, but I definitely, because of that, having to think differently and I'm, I think I'm slower writing it, but I think the programs I write with it are much faster. Right. Because, you know, you fire up an Erlang virtual machine and it can immediately use um, every core on the machine. I actually did a demonstration. I didn't have time to, to put it together or to, to do it, but I actually simulated on my laptop firing off a million processes doing work. Um, and it was from one Erlang virtual machine that then spread out to however many cores the laptop had, maybe four. So I demonstrated this um, 
in a presentation because a lot of what I showed here now is from a presentation I gave at a uh, meetup. Hmm. So for that, you know, whereas doing something that is multi-threaded in Ruby is super, to me, is super complicated, starts getting super complicated. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, multi-threading in Ruby is not really, you can do it, but it's not kind of a frontline thought pattern for most Ruby developers. Um, it's it's kind of relegated to the very special cases, um, especially if you started in Ruby. I mean, I think about threading because I spent a lot of a lot of my career in desktop programming where threading was a big deal, and you know yep. that's just how you thought about things. Um, so. I, you know, I think about that in Ruby, but I rarely use multi-threaded stuff outside of, you know, letting the the um, the Ruby server itself handle yeah, the some infrastructure things. that you're writing on top of handles a lot. Yeah, right. Handles a lot of that stuff. Yeah. So I don't have to think about it, which is nice because I'll tell you in .NET programming, threading is just. I'd, I'd rather poke myself in the eye with a fork than do threading in .NET anymore. I don't ever want to see that stuff again. That was that was just a nightmare. But, um, so yeah, it, I th I think that the the concurrency is really nice. But here's my big question. This is this would be a steep learning curve to get into this functional programming for me anyway. Is it worth it? Well, I mean, well, I hate to say it, but you know, it it depends. I mean, if you want to broaden your horizons, like thinking of our audience, if you want to broaden your broaden your horizons and kind of understand more about functional programming, it's definitely a thing to play around with and give it a try and see see what you like about it, what you don't like about it. Um, you know, it's a kind of akin to that book. I think there was a book out, you know, learn so many languages in so many days or something. Right. So I mean, having exposure to it is is interesting, and then. There are some languages that are more functional programming, um, more friendly to functional programming, and maybe you want to incorporate some, because again, they're paradigms as opposed to languages. So you could start using more of a functional style in JavaScript or in Python, for example, Yeah. as long as you're not going to get in trouble for, do <laughs> for doing that. Um, but what... In terms of, of actually using it for a project, I would have to compare it against, again, I'm kind of falling back to the languages. So like Ruby super fast for doing something basic, but if you have something very performance minded or you're, you're no something that's gonna be using a lot of cores or a lot of concurrency, maybe you would wanna consider it. Right, and that's, I guess maybe that's a, a better way to ask my question more specifically. If I had a, um, a, a big Ruby project where um, load was a big deal, like where I work now, um, is it, do you think it's it's a good idea to start looking at functional programming to scale or to stick with the way we scale Ruby currently, which is, you know, throw some more hardware at it, scale horizontally, um, more stuff like that? Or is, is Elixir or something like Elixir, the functional programming paradigm itself, is that a good avenue to go down to solve scaling issues Um in web programming? So I would probably not, if you are a 
rail shop or a Ruby shop and all your experiences in that, I wouldn't change it. I would keep doing what you're doing and just maybe see if there's alterations you can do and how you're writing the Ruby to make it more performant if that exists. Mm -hmm. Or apart from that, like this is something I've done. Do I regret? I mean, part of it was done as an educational project, um, but it still exists in terms of my own application, but bringing up a microservice. So there is was something specific that it was basically event tracking. And I know that that can get a lot of traffic, all the events for something being fired in my application. So I actually wrote a, I'll call it a microservice using Elixir and Phoenix. So mm -hmm. if you have one part of the, your application, like if you have this big monolith and you have one part that is experiencing pain, could you set up a microservice and, and you're using a Ruby, could you set up a microservice on something faster? And I don't want to say it has to be a functional programming language. It, it could be anything that, that's faster. It could be Go or, or I don't know if they call it Gopher or something. Anyway, it could be something written in Go or written in some other language that gives you that speed for that specific issue. Yeah. Generally, I wouldn't change it, but I guess the only consideration, I, I wouldn't move from Ruby, but basically if all other avenues have been exhausted or you want to try bringing something up as a specific microservice, then I could see choosing another language or framework to handle that. If that particular service needed to be very highly performant or something like that. Right, 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 right. Yeah. So, so let's let's forget about Ruby and Elixir specifically and just talk about for a minute functional and object oriented. So and let's let's take the theoretical discussion out and look at it from a practical real world standpoint. What benefits do functional programming bring over object oriented programming? So again, the one thing that's mentioned, and this is, again, it's more of the theoretical, but it constrains assignment. And what I mean by that is that there's no global state within the programs, really. Right. Meaning you just have pure functions and they get called. So it's very consistent. Whatever you put in the input, you're going to get the same output. The function doesn't mutate, doesn't change. So your results aren't going to change. Whereas if you have an object in an object-oriented programming language, those have variables that could be set. There could be instance variables that get updated. Um, so that's the an opportunity to, to change state. Right now. Which could lead to errors. I would say that there are certain cases where that's actually an advantage, and I've got one that I used in the past where I had to, for a web application, I had to write basically a conductor object that could coordinate states and information between a bunch of different things in real time using WebSockets and stuff. Um, and if it hadn't been able to carry that mutated data to pass from one object to another when it got called to say, what is the current state overall, I would have had no way to do that. So in that case, functional programming would have actually been a detriment for me. Now, perhaps I could have figured out a way to do it in functional programming, but I couldn't have done, done it the way I did it with some kind of central conductor. Well, when you say something like a central conductor, I think of that would be a dedicated process you would spin up. Right, but it has to carry mutated state information to pass well, around to various objects. 
and say this is the current state of the union. Well, and you would do that through processes. Hmm. So you would spin up a process and you could have a coordinator process that kind of knows or checks what the state of the other processes are. Right, but that but that coordinator process Hmm. Maybe I'll have to digest this functional stuff. Yeah, and... I mean it it requires and again I it's it's actually been a while since I've actually uh done a lot of elixir programming. I am running again a microservice in elixir and I go in there from time to time, but it's not something I'm doing on a daily basis. I'm mostly right. using the, the Ruby. So on the scenario where, yeah, it's a Rails monolith, but I actually have a Elixir or a Phoenix microservice doing a few things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'd have to step back because my brain keeps going back to how things work in object-oriented, and that's how it wants to think. So I've got I've to have some time to kind of step back and say, okay, functional would do it this way. Um, and again, unfortunately, I'm bringing back up Elixir again as opposed to functional programming. But presumably, other languages have a means to maintain a state. It's just not done through creating an object or global variables and things of that nature because they just don't exist. Right. And... You know, I think, I think too. What we're talking about Elixir is one of the most one of the most pure functional languages that you've had experience with. Um, but Ruby, you can do a lot of functional programming in Ruby. You don't have to use objects all the time with Ruby. So, um, you know, if functional programming is something you want to look into, don't think that oh gosh, I got to learn a whole new language. No. Um, most languages you can do functional programming. It's a it's a methodology, not a language. It's just that some languages like Elixir either enforce it better or make it easier yeah. to accomplish. Yeah. So. All right. Well, I feel like I'm you know a lot smarter after tonight. So thanks for that. Um, hope you guys enjoyed that. Um, Please leave any comments or questions in the comment box if you're watching this on YouTube, which most of you would be. Uh, don't forget to subscribe, follow, ding the notification bell. Uh, we or if are, you want email notifications, go to rubberduckdevshow.com and put in your email. Sign up for our email we'll list. That's right. Send you a notification. We promise we don't sell it to anybody. It's just for us. Um but uh, we are on every Wednesday night, 8 p.m. Eastern time, having conversations. You guys are more than welcome to join us and chat live, ask questions, and give your opinions. We are happy to have you. Uh, so if you enjoyed that, please mash all the buttons and ding all the bells. Until next week, have fun.